Hey everybody, welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. And listen, I had um, some technical difficulties with my microphone last week, which I believe have now been resolved. Um, I appreciate those of you who called them to my attention, but I believe they have now been resolved. Uh, I hope that they have been, and I'm grateful that you uh, let us know about it. Anyway, I think I said that I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I probably said that I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, uh, Ed Condon. Ed, did I say that? Um, I think you probably did, and I- I'm sorry to hear that you were having technical difficulties with your microphone last week. I yeah, it's one I of those did things. not receive that feedback. I did, actually. I'm as as I mentioned last week, I'm I'm still over in London, although I've been to Rome and back since last we spoke. Uh, I did. I got. I was told that um, by a friend of mine, a, a long-standing friend of mine who I haven't seen in a couple of years, told me that they'd actually been listening to the podcast and they said I sound much better on the podcast than in real life. Which um, oh, that's a kind of a backhanded compliment, isn't I it? I don't know if it was a backhanded compliment or just a backhander. I you know it just. <laughs> didn't know what to make of that, to be honest with you. But I'm glad that I'm at least recording in a good way, I guess. <laughs> our producer was telling me a story about a person. She didn't tell me who the person was. So person, I don't know who you are. But our producer was telling me about – our producer, Kate Oliveira, producer extraordinaire, was telling me a story about a person who used to listen to the podcast uh, to fall asleep because of our soothing, silky, sultry voice. Not sultry. I don't want to make it weird. But our because of our the, the melody and, and, uh, and, and rhythm of the show. But – she was telling our producer, Kate, that she can no longer listen to it to fall asleep because she, we have made a series, she said, of very interesting shows. And the shows have been so interesting that she hasn't been able to fall asleep to them, which I take as a great We're compliment. keeping people up. The podcast that may keep you awake. I, I'm, I can live with that. I'm just glad to know that my baseline is, you know, I, I've worked hard to get the voice for radio that I have, J.D. I have been sending these you vocal do, cords do down with Marlboros and bourbon for a good two decades now. And... You know, I'm glad that my efforts have not been in vain. And I promise I will keep it up. Uh, I want to hear about, um, not so much that, but you were you were in Rome this week, were you not? I, I was in Rome for a few days. I had um, two or three meetings. Uh, I had an interesting encounter at one point. I was having lunch with a friend of mine. And, and as many of my friends are, they're a little skittish about having lunch with me around the Vatican. In case someone might recognize, sure, sure, me. sure. In case someone might recognize, yeah. Mm-hmm. No one wants to be thought to be a source of. Ours, no one wants to understandably to be thought of a friend of mine, which is, you know. oh, <laughs> which maybe does that that doesn't does that precede the pillar? Is that just your ordinary experience? It may well be. I mean, who knows? I've no I, poor guy. I, I couldn't say, but no, I was having lunch in a really fabulous restaurant that I hadn't been to before around um, in the environs of the Vatican, and I, I don't know why the guy I was having lunch with picked that place because it seemed to be where the curio went for lunch. Like there were, there was a lot of, there were a lot of people in there, people that I recognized who work in the Curia. And so I was surprised that they'd pick this place. But anyway, sitting at sort of the the table next to me was Archbishop Pinapara, which oh, you mentioned that. I found That's right. really, really amusing. He was having, he was having lunch with um, a family, you know, a nice family, mom, dad, three kids, that sort of thing. Teenager looking sullen and bored, that sort of thing. So I, I didn't go over and impose myself on him or anything like that. But I did find it amusing that, you know, of all the gin joints and, you know. In all the world. Exactly. But as we were, as we were leaving, because we finished it about the same time, he and I kind of sort of stutter-stepped, almost bumped into each other on the door out. He kind of looked me up and down and narrowed his eyes at me and then sort of walked off looking over his shoulder like, 
Like he might have recognized me, but couldn't quite place me. And JD, I'll be honest with you, that felt great. I felt like, you know, we're making an impact. Because, I mean, I haven't, you know, I've, I haven't crossed the street to pick a fight with Archbishop Pinipar. I've got no axe to grind with him particularly. Um, and, and to feel like he, you know, he kind of half knows who we are, you know? I, 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 yeah, no, I, I, I think I'm validated by that. He had a very nice watch on. I will say that for him. Very nice. I'm not going to shame him by, by you know, giving giving maker and uh, model and serial number, but it was... He was wearing a soup dish on his wrist. I mean, that that's, well, that's a watch. Is that a phrase? Is that a watch phrase? Wearing a soup, soup it was dish a, on your wrist? No, it was specifically it was a big watch. I mean, soup dish on your wrist. Was, that's a hard, hard it was a, it, it was not a small watch. It was, you know, it was a, uh-huh. it was a statement piece, you could say, J.D. Yeah, yeah. One day I'm going to do that. I'm going to spend – I we don't have anywhere near enough time or, or money for this sort of frivolity. But if we did, I'd really like to take a week in Rome and just hang out in the coffee shops and – you know, pasta restaurants and stuff around immediately around St. Peter's where everybody goes to lunches and dinners and just do a piece on the watches of the Roman Curia. I think people would like that. I think people would find that very, very interesting. I think they would too. I'd find it yeah. interesting. And no, what I mean, else it matters? It obviously has to be done, right. It obviously has to be done um, when we're in Rome for other kinds of work. Right. It it's would not, not be worth... appropriate to be in Rome simply to sort of watch, to be vo- Although, watch voyeur. JD, but... you could really, that like the watch shopping in Rome is insane. I know, I know. Every time I go to Rome with you, I, I have that picture. In fact, maybe we'll make it a picture in the show notes this week that I have a picture of you ogling a watch store in Rome. It's incredible. Ugly. No, there was like, yeah. I have, I, I've, in another place I've ranted about this before, but I mean, there is a bona fide Rolex shortage in North America. Like you can't walk into a shop and just say, I want that Rolex, please. Like it's not going to happen for you. The stocks are just not high enough. People aren't getting those huge wait lists. A lot of that has to do with the sort of cartel-like behavior of Rolex's authorized dealer network, but the separate conversation. But in Rome, it's like you can't walk two blocks without a window full of Rolexes. And it's, and some of them were like discontinued rare models. Like I was shocked. It's unbelievable. Wow, Sorry, this is not what you incredible. wanted to talk about this week, and I apologize. No, I'm very, very glad to talk about it. I'm very glad that we're talking about it. Thank you for talking about it with me, Ed. Um, but no, it's not what I wanted to talk about. But as long as we're talking about stuff that happened this week, you and I here at the show had a really interesting experience. We're going to talk about some other news in a minute, but we had a really interesting experience because we had a report this week that we're not going to spend a whole lot of time on, but we had a report this week detailing um, allegations or accusations, if you will, of um, – a sexual misconduct on the part of um, former father Frank Pavone, the former head of the Priest for Life. We confirmed that several reports were submitted to the Diocese of Amarillo, Texas, and some to the Archdiocese of New York, alleging a pattern of um, a pattern of, of misbehavior involving interns and um, what some of them have described as grooming, coerced sexual contact, and other things. And some of them have alleged that the Diocese of Amarillo did not handle those allegations well. We got a hold of one report. We talked with a woman. We uh, have seen some other reporting of a, of a priest saying that he, he counseled a, another woman. We confirmed that other reports were um, uh, submitted, and um, and I think we probably will have more reporting on this as well in the future. But we did this reporting, and um, we knew that it would be a little bit controversial because um, Pavone is a controversial figure. He, he was laicized last year, and it has been there has been a lot of controversy about that with people saying that um, – Pavone, uh, who is regarded by many people as a sort of pro-life hero, was targeted or marginalized because of his pro-life activity and priests who, um, who who teach things which are contrary to the teachings of the church are not disciplined at all. And we've talked about that on the show, how his bishop initiated this laicization process through the special faculties too, and that the perception of um, 
of a sort of hypocrisy between the treatment of Pavone and other clerics might be regarded, I think, honestly, as a kind of sort of institutionalized cultural hypocrisy, perhaps, where that certain people may may themselves sort of be subject to ecclesiastical discipline and others. But really, the fact of the matter is, on the Pavone case, he was laicized because his bishop initiated a special faculties two case, and clerics who are not dis- subject to canonical discipline, it's usually the case that that's because their diocese or religious institute didn't address that. Now, one exception to that might be Marco Rupnik. Nobody understands why Marco Rupnik, the Slovenian Jesuit who remains a consultor on several Vatican dicasteries despite allegations of uh, the serial sexual abuse of religious women and um, despite having been excommunicated for uh, attempting to absolve an accomplice in a sin against the Sixth Commandment. Um, nobody knows why, Mark, why, why Rupnik is, um, remains uh, in the prominent position in which he has remained. The point is, um, we reported this about Pavone. We knew it would be controversial, but we thought it was important reporting. Why did we think it was important reporting? Because the subject of Pavone's laicization has been discussed at length in the life of the church by many people. Many people have drawn conclusions about Pavone's laicization, like the fact, like the notion that he was persecuted or other ideas. And we thought that it was a relevant data point, a relevant point of understanding and assessment that indeed the priest has had has been the subject of multiple allegations of sexual misconduct, harassment, or, or, or grooming behavior. Yes. I mean, when when the news broke, when the Apostolic Nuncio circulated a letter amongst the U.S. bishops late last year saying that Pavone had been laicized um, and giving the reasons why, it's worth noting that letter didn't in any way reference these these accusations. Right. Um, but nor did that letter reference that Pavone's sort of, you know, political activities, his um, his pro-life advocacy as a as a problem in and of itself or anything like that and that was what a lot of people said was behind the decision there was a lot of speculations even i think giving it too much credit a lot of just wish casting i think that pavone had been basically dinged from the clerical state because he was uh too pro-life and that the democratic party had been out to get him and the bishops are all in league with the democratic party and the Vatican loves, you know, president Biden. And so as a favor to the president, the Pope laicized Frank Pavone, (laughs) this sort of nonsense. And it seems to me that it was already a subject of much media discussion about, you know, why, you know, what sort of priest Frank Pavone was and why he was removed from ministry. And, you know, and, and I think it's unquestionably newsworthy that, you have a well-rounded picture of this person's life in ministry and his leadership of a well-remunerated and well-funded and prominent organization like Priests for Life. I think, you know, this is all part and parcel of following the entirety of a story and having the necessary context to be able to discuss it and report on it in the round. Yeah, that's right. I agree. I will say, as to people who had those kinds of suspicions, I, I will say I can understand. I mean, I think we both can understand the frustration of people who feel like – um Clerics who uh, who are persistently scandalous in the life of the church are not subject to ecclesiastical discipline. I think we can both understand that. And I think some of the Pavone discontentedness was probably born from that legitimate frustration and a desire to understand it and things like that. But the fact of the matter is, it is uh, unquestionably relevant that Pavone was uh, was accused, it seems, frequently of, of this kind of misconduct. Now, uh, as I say, we'll probably have more reporting on that. There's also a question, of course, about how the diocese handled it. The woman who I spoke with, you know, Pavone acknowledged having having been the subject of 
um, uh, reports of misconduct. And uh, his spokeswoman told me that um, all of the incidents of which Father Pavone is aware have been resolved under the leadership of his bishop satisfactorily. So Pavone acknowledged having been accused of such matters and said that they've been resolved satisfactorily. And the woman who I spoke with said, um, well, not satisfactorily to me. Um, I had a brief conversation well, with the bishop. Satisfactorily is really a subjective term. Right, precisely, and 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 the the locus of the satisfaction needs to be specified, I think, in order for one to have a full picture of what what is intended by the word. Um, and this woman said, "Well, it may have indeed have been a satisfactory resolution for him, but it was not a satisfactory resolution for me." And that's a fair perspective. So there's lots and lots and lots of reporting, uh, I think, that can continue to be done on this. And I expect that we'll be able to do some, although. Um, that's not a definite because nothing is no one cannot project definitively that one will be able to do more reporting until one has the story and then one reports it. With that said, the interesting thing for us as a sort of news outlet about it, um, the reporting was very important, but we had an interesting experience which correlates to it because it was the first reporting that we have ever done. And I was so surprised by this because, Ed, we are frequently the subject of someone's ire. We frequently are ticking someone off. And I have long believed that we are more or less equal opportunity offenders, that some group or another across the broad sort of spectrum of the ecclesiastical panoply of ideologies, perspectives, tribes, and alliances, it seems to me that we are taking people off from left and right with relative equal uh, frequency, or at least a sort of relatively equal spread across the, the, the panoply. But I was surprised because this Pavone story is the first time when we had a sort of en masse cancellation of subscriptions in response to the story, which was kind of, I mean, it, it'll be okay. I mean, it'll, it'll be okay. But it was more for me revelatory. Um, I, I don't quite even know that I fully understand why this was the one and others didn't trigger this. Um, I have often thought upon reporting something, boy, a lot of people are going to cancel their subscriptions. So they're going to be mad. But it's never really happened before. This was the one. And I wonder what you make of that. I, I don't know what to make of it. I, I think Not to make us the story, but I just have been wondering what you think No, of no, it. no. It's just the interesting yeah. thing that happened this week. Um, and I, I was a little alarmed there when, you know, the numbers, the subscriber numbers went down. I mean, I'm I'm human. We're not, you know, our, our coverage isn't geared towards making money. Lord knows. Um, <laughs> but nevertheless, <laughs> when we Everybody's move backwards at a, a speed, right, yeah. I, yeah, we move backwards at a speed. I get a little nervous like anyone would, but... No, I think we are definitely equal opportunities offenders, and i tell you for why. I saw a tweet at one point, someone forwarded it to me, um, shortly after the Pavone thing was published, which was really quite funny. And it was someone who their their bylines at other news outlets and media organizations told me sort of what side of the ideological fence they sit on, and I, I would call them a critic of ours from the left. Um, and they were basically saying, this is important coverage, and I'm summarizing it here so you don't have to read the pillar because that would be bad. <laughs> Which I just that there was the, we had people who were mad at us for being libs and canceling their subscriptions. Meanwhile, libs were saying, "Well, I'm going to summarize this so you don't read those evil conservatives about the story." And it really was a, it was a moment of zen, JD. I'm not going to. <laughs> I, it really was a moment of Zen for me. I just thought, okay, <laughs> yeah, go, cool, cool. This cool. is the room we live in. All right, yeah. Well, that's funny. Um, anyway, yeah. I mean, I just, I guess it just. I mean, I guess it just goes. To I'm show all right you. with it. I wrote about this in the news. I'm totally all right with it. It's just, it's just. Um, I'm surprised. What it tells me, honestly, is something that we already knew, which is, um, it seems to me that what we could conclude is that obviously Pavone has a fierce set of defenders and um and it tells me possibly that there's a broad section of people who like when we um 
cover Rupnik or grinder use at the USCCB or other things which they regard as um, kind of uh, criticisms of the church's left, but uh, for things which get closer to home are uh, no good ski. Um, so I don't think most of our listeners are, I don't think most of our listeners to the show are that way, but it did tell me we had a swath of subscribers who sort of had decided we were in their camp and then decided we weren't. <laughs> Well, sooner or later, we're going to disappoint everyone in that regard. Yeah, that's um, exactly right. Every, yeah, that's exactly it. Trent Reznor probably said it best at one point or another. Trent Reznor? Yeah, Trent Reznor. You know. I know who Trent Reznor is. Is he the dude from Nine Inch Nails? He is Nine Inch Nails. J.D., you did not strike me as a Nine Inch Nails fan. But, I mean, you know, nine, the whole of Nine Inch Nails is Trent Reznor. That's is effectively his stage it's, name. Yeah. That's not my sound. Oh, well, you might misunderstand the depth of my teenage angst as a, te- as a teenager. How angsty? That's not. Hang on. You you grew up evangelical. I don't. Yeah, how is this possible? No, there's. That's like a contradiction in terms. How do you do that? <laughs> I don't think you can't be a happy, seems... clappy goth. That doesn't make any sense. Actually, you're very wrong about that. You cl- well, what you're telling me right now Ed, is that you have clearly never been to an, a, an American Protestant music festival of any kind. Well, that's because... for sure. <laughs> I have I have owned up to you before, and you have still not satisfactorily been able to explain to me. I don't actually know, short of parsing the literal meaning of the two words, I don't actually know what praise and worship means. Yeah, well, like, yeah, you I do know what the words are, but you don't know what they mean as a, uh, together. Yes. yes, I don't know what the idiom is. Like I, you're you're a hundred percent right. It is not my. It is not within the realm of my experience, and and it's a blind spot. I'm not, you know. I, but you you telling me that there there's like charismatic nine inch nails appreciation is. That that's news no, to me. Yeah, I, I'm not going to break down for you the sort of landscape of American evangelicalism and oh, the way I it interfaces. That would be a great show. But but the thing is, I have not been an evangelical in a long time. I would be I would be breaking down the landscape of sort of 90s American evangelicalism that I knew from the Creation Festival, which was awesome, and other things like that. I, so I would, would be I would dated. listen to that, let alone participate in a conversation <laughs> where you walked me through it and got to ask questions. That. We may that may be a that may be a bonus episode. Well, my my future. yeah, my dad and I used to go to cool like um, evangelical music festivals, and so I don't want to talk about that. I don't. I, don't want to talk I about really that. do, but okay. What do you want to talk about? Well, I think we probably would be we probably okay. We probably should talk a little bit about a big interview that uh, Pope Francis gave this week with the Associated Press. Have you read the Pope's um, interview uh, with you? I have read. I think most of it. I hope. All of it. it I mean, it this is the kind the, of thing he... where the Pope did an interview with AP, and they broke it down into several stories that they published with different from different facets of the interview. This is something people like to do so that they get more stories out of one interview, where they kind of will give you a, a report on one element of it with the background, and one element of the background, one element of the background, and and uh, so it was the it was that kind of thing where you had to. Sort yeah, of I'm read cool with that. If that's what people want to do, yeah, it's fine. You know, but yeah, no judgments. But I just I never know if I missed one. Yeah, no, that's exactly that's exactly right. One of the um, bits that has attracted the most attention was born out of basically um, a misunderstanding. Um, Pope Francis uh, talked about his uh, view that uh, laws which criminalize homosexual activity are unjust and that places um, in the world, sub-Saharan Africa, the Middle East are among those places, that places in the world which have laws criminalizing uh, same-sex sexual activity should see those laws repealed and uh and that's a position that i think many catholics have stated i think it's, i think there are probably people who i suspect almost certainly there are people who disagree but you know i'm i don't i i'm not really up to speed on the debate the interesting thing to me about 
um, what happened subsequently is that the Pope <laughs> did a thing that the Pope does, and it was really, uh, it led to a little bit of a fracas that was not a fracas, because uh, the Pope said uh, in the interview, um, uh, uh, let me let me read to you a little bit of the interview as it was reported um, by the AP. Uh, bantering with himself, Francis articulated the position, quote, it's not a crime. Yes, but it's a sin. Fine, but first let's distinguish between a sin and a crime. It's also a sin to lack charity with one another, he added. Now, there was a bit of a backlash because there were a set of people who believed that what the Pope was saying is that homosexuality itself is a sin. The state of having same-sex sexual attractions, homosexual sexual attractions, is itself a sin, and there was a backlash against that. Why would the Pope say that? That that that's um, not what the Church teaches. That's that's you know extremely draconian, et cetera, et cetera. But what the Pope was actually so there's a kind of big backlash about this. But what the Pope was actually doing it was making for himself a little dialogue. It's not yes. a crime. Yes, 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 but it's a sin. See, they well, didn't do the voices. AP didn't the report thing. the voices. Yeah, if Francis was doing voices, he he was without a doubt. Definitely. I mean, he just, I don't have There's a doubt video because he's this, always, isn't there? Oh, I haven't seen it, but he's always doing the No, voice. I haven't seen it, but I'm saying like I saw some yeah. footage of like the sitting down, the setting up, the putting up of lighting. You know how they, you always have to, you know, you always have to do the sort of, you know, weird staging clips whenever, you know, you're publishing an interview with this sort of stuff, which I find weird. But anyway, um, if he's doing voices, I mean, I mean, it's clear to me that rhetorically he's speaking in different voices to himself, but I'm saying if he's actually doing voices, that would be. I, I would like to see that. I'd like to know what kind what because maybe the Pope has like a go to voice for the person he disagrees with or yeah. is setting himself in conversation against. Like, does your mom have one? My mother certainly has one. I don't think so. Oh no, my mother has a stock voice which is either which she applies to it's like in place of an impression. Yeah. Like, you know, whenever she's sort of saying, Well, this is what you said or this is what happened or this is what a person who thinks this would say, she has like a stock voice she goes to. And I I wonder if Francis has one of those. And if so, I would like to know what it was. Yeah, me too. Is it baritone? Is it sort of high and squeaky? Is it, you know, what, like, where does he go with it? I, I, would I like think to he makes a deeper voice. If I remember correctly from having from having seen other interviews with the Pope, I oh, think he makes a deeper voice. Oh, it is a sin. Oh, yeah, right, like that, exactly, That's right. exactly. That's right. Yep. Okay, mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I, I mean, I think you're right. I take exception to the AP saying, calling this banter. That's not what banter means. Right. An exchange of dialogue between two parties is not banter. Banter is is witty and barbed repartee. This is, you know, right. they're, you know, that's not what's going on here. So strike against AP. But then again, they also want to do away with definite articles this week. So, you know, whatever. Um, did you see that, by the way? See what? That AP that AP style has tried to do away with definite articles and provoked no, a small internationalist. No, there was a tweet about that and it was widely misunderstood. And I don't... I no, it wasn't. Think, they said the French was a dehumanizing term. I the think French got very upset. It, yeah, I think they were trying to make it a bit of a joke. Well, if if AP were making a joke, they should have owned it. Instead, they apologized. If the if the if AP style had well, they apologized, but I think they apologized. I think the apology was something of a concession that it was a joke. Anyway, you're going to have to tell people what this was now. Oh, uh, AP style put out and said that you know that you should you should not use whenever possible a, a the definite article when describing groups of people because it was dehumanizing, and amongst the. Like, what would be an example of that? Well, they said the poor, for example. But then they also said the college educated and the French. And <laughs> funny. Well, um, well I, 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 you know, I have no problem with, you know, casting shade against people who went to Harvard, for example. I, I think it's a bit of a reach to suggest that referring to French people as the French 
dehumanizing unless you have a very low opinion of that nation and culture, which I do not. <laughs> um, so that was very funny. Anyway, back to Pope Francis. Um, I think you're right. And it has, it has caused a bit of a flurry and it was unnecessary. And I don't think anyone who's familiar at all with the thought or teaching of Pope Francis could ever reasonably contend that, oh yeah, no, the Pope seriously said that the disposition to same-sex attraction is itself sinful. I mean, right, that, because this is a guy who said if a person, tr- you know, tries to live celibately, if a cleric tries to live celibately, who am I to judge? And constantly, who am I to judge? And these kinds of things. I mean, the Pope has said more than enough, I think, on this topic. Yes. Um, so I, I, yeah, that was that was definitely a storm in a teacup, and I, and it got, I think, more more traction than it needed to or or deserved. Um, I mean, it was an interesting interview. Yeah. It, the, he touched the, on a the, lot the broad of broad associated press interview with the Pope was a very interesting interview. Yeah. His comments on the Rupnik case that he had in effect, nothing to do with the, well, Ed, I'm glad you raised that because I want to talk about it right after this word from our sponsor. Okay. JD, uh, this week we do have a sponsor for the show for which we are very grateful. And it's probably a sponsor that people are familiar with if they've been listening to the show at any length of time. And I'm glad to have them back. And it is JD, the saint maker. And for those of you who don't know or don't remember previous occasions where the Saint Maker has guested on this show, what it is is it's a personal journal and daily planner that is meant to help you, you know, introduce a bit of substance, a bit of style, a bit of structure into your daily life, but specifically your prayer life and help you grow in, you know, provides you spiritual reading and helps you schedule a prayer regimen and stuff. And look, everyone who sponsors an episode of the show, send us copy that, you know, list the broad bullet points and we could read that out for you if you want and you know that would be great but i'm just going to tell you straight the reason i like the saint maker is it's cool it's just a cool thing yeah it is cool the saint maker is a cool journal planner thing uh which i think they i think the saint maker uh calls it a -a one-of-a-kind personal journal and planner so we're on the right track by calling it journal planner thing the saint maker is a cool journal planner thing because actually first of all it's a very attractive it's a very attractive that's what i mean it's It's a a pleasant thing to hold in your hand yeah that's exactly right it has it's 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 hefty without being cumbersome it's uh it's it's uh, well laid out inside and in addition to planning your appoint you know tracking your appointments and and um and and your deadlines and things like that your plenary stuff it's oriented towards making plans and goals and tracking progress in the spiritual life i intend to um have a, a twice weekly holy hour and to pray the rosary and i can be and, and i can be concrete in that in the saint maker and at the same time i can uh, there's a there are prompts to ask uh, you know in which i can track even the movement or presence of God in my life. The, the Saint Maker is cool because it is, yeah, um, it does the job of a planner, but it also does the job of an encouragement, a concrete encouragement um, in the spiritual life that I think for a lot of people is really helpful. And again, the thing is just attractive. It's a, it's a well-made journal planner thing. And, you know, I was I was talking about this with someone. This, this goes to show you how far our modern society has devolved, even for people like me. I can't remember if I was talking about this with a person on the Twitters or in real life. I don't even remember anymore. Um, but we were talking about saying the daily office and everything and, and about how, you know, yeah, it's a pain in the neck to learn to flip between all the ribbons in the in, in the breviary. And and I said that, you know, I use a, an app on my phone half the time because I don't necessarily carry the breviary with me if I'm out and around during the day, stuff like that. Um, and those work fine. In fact, some I like more than others, but they're not sponsoring this show, so I'm not going to tell you who. Uh, anyway. The point is, there is something better, 
to praying with the actual book. The physical medium is helpful. It focuses the body as well as the mind and all that sort of thing. And I think the same is true with this sort of thing. That, you know, yeah, you could plug all of your appointments and your, you know, set reminders on your phone and do all this nonsense electronically. But having a, a proper journal, planner, call it whatever you want, like it, it is an added focus. It is an added thing. It's helpful. It you know I like it I prefer it I'm an old fashioned yeah. guy JD no I, I, like, I agree I, I agree too. I like pen no, and I paper think, I like no, a book. I think I think we, listen this is an incarnational world and this is a there physical a tangible thing a temporal, a temporal good an incarnational expression both of schedule and the spiritual life so here's the deal um, with all of that said uh, lots of people are already using the Saint Maker you can tell that Ed and I love it uh, the Saint Maker aims to help you keep focused productive and on fire for the faith and here's the deal you can try it out. For free because the Saint Maker will give you a free trial offer. You can try it for 90 days risk free, and then if you don't like it, you can send it back to them for a refund, including shipping. So it's like free, free. And Pillar listeners can uh, get 10% off their first Saint Maker by going to thesaintmaker.com/pillar, thesaintmaker.com/pillar, and using the promo code Pillar, all caps, Pillar, all caps. Um, again, go to your browser, type in uh, thesaintmaker.com/pillar. You can learn more about the Saint Maker, and you can get 10% off using the promo code Pillar to get that discount. The Saint Maker, you're going to love it. We are back, Ed. We're back from our sponsor for this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast. And you wanted to talk a little bit about Pope Francis's comments regarding Father Marco Rupnik, which he made in an interview he gave this week with the Associated Press. Yeah. I, I mean, I'm glad that the AP reporter who was interviewing Francis brought it up, and I'm glad you know, she asked him some of the questions because there's been a lot of, you know, there's been, it is still, there's a lot that's still murky about the Rupnik case, about how he managed to float above his own excommunication for yeah. a period of years. And, you know, nobody, and I've talked to other people in other Vatican departments uh, earlier this week, including, and said, you know, how is it possible that this guy was a, you know, was listed as an expert advisor? Right to a curial department, or two, or three, or yours. You know how how does this happen? How do you like the guy was excommunicated for one of the worst sacramental abuses the church has a law for, and yet it was no penalty, effectively. Like you know they they declared the penalty of excommunication, lifted it more or less at the same time, from what I understand. You know how is this possible? And what I was told by more than a few people was we didn't know. Nobody told us. You know the mm -hmm. the CDF, excuse me, the DDF you know, sent all this stuff back through the Jesuits and they never told anybody. We had no idea. And and that's messed up. And But it's also raised, and this has been something we've reported on and other people have too, a lot of questions about, you know, who knew what and who made what decisions in regard to this case? Who decided what was going to be investigated and what wasn't? Who decided what charges were going to be pressed and what weren't? Who decided that Rupnik's excommunication was going to be imposed and lifted virtually simultaneously? You know, wh wh who was calling the shots on all of this? And there's been quite a lot of buck passing between the Jesuits and the DDF. And you had at one point there, Father Hanzolner, who's the sort of public face of the Pontifical Commission for the Protection of Minors, saying, well, actually, I think, you know, the DDF has a lot of questions to answer here. And, you know, it seems to me that the Jesuit order also has a lot of questions to answer here. But it's sort of floating above all of this has been like, well, what did Pope Francis know? And there have been, you know, sort of um, 
what's the what's the word I'm looking for? Various theories about what Pope Francis knew various theories of what, what he knew and when and why and why right. he would have known it and why he must have played a role. Everything from well, they're There's both a perception Jesuits. That Pope Francis would have had to would have himself had to remit the penalty of excommunication declared against Father Rupnik at the time of uh, that the that the CDF declared an excommunication against him. Although that doesn't comport with the procedural norms of uh, no, it doesn't. The relevant you you guidance, straight so. into my. F- Favorite mastermind subject here. Yes, the procedural norms of Sacramentorum Sanctitatis Tutela do in fact make it quite clear that it is the dicastery for the doctrine of the faith that on a stable basis both judges these cases and remits. And can remit the penalty, right? Mm -hmm. Yes. So there's no reason in law why Francis had to have been involved in this. Mm -hmm. Um, Other people have suggested that, you know, um, well, you know, Rupnik was a famous Jesuit. He did a lot of stuff around the Vatican. Pope Francis happens to be quite a famous Jesuit. Um, and Francis spends a lot of time hanging out with other Jesuits and stuff like, you know, surely someone told him at some point and he must have, you know, taken an interest in the case. And and Francis told the AP that basically he had no input into the case, kept his hands off. The only thing he did was when further accusations were were presented or, you know, the report of a further investigation was sent up to the Vatican by the Jesuits, he intervened to say, you no, know, the same tribunal that judged him the first time around can judge the second. Like, let's keep a single stable court constituted to hear all of this. I don't think it was a court, actually, because it was an extrajudicial process. I, you know, this, But the single, ju- the same judicial authority in, in all cases was what he said that he'd done. And, you know, okay, it, the more information we can get on this subject, I think the better, because the Rupnik scandal is still a big deal, and a lot of people are still, I think, very, very rightly outraged at how it has been handled and is still being handled. And there are a lot of questions about the decision that was made not to waive the canonical statute of limitations on, I think at this point we can say most of the allegations. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Yep. Marco Mm -hmm. Rupnik and basically say they weren't going to prosecute because the statute of limitations had run, despite the fact that they lift them in almost all other cases. And Francis said, you know, that wasn't his call in, in Rupnik's case. It was handled at the DDF, but his own personal opinion is you, and he used a Spanish idiom to do with horse riding, which I, I don't remember, but basically he said his, his general mentality in this is if it involves minors, you go hard. And if it doesn't, the legal safeguards are the legal safeguards and you should honor them when you can. And I mean, the Pope was expressing a, an opinion. He wasn't saying this is policy. He was just saying, you know, I didn't make this call but here's how I think about these things. And I don't know. I'm kind of torn on this, J.D., because on the one hand, I do think that things like canonical prescription or the statute of limitations are they're a real part of the law, and we have them in canon law, and we have them in civil law for, for good reason. You know, After a certain point, it becomes very difficult to, to establish a crime, and you know that, that we don't have those laws idly. On the other hand, in cases like Rupnik's, where you have such appalling accusations of behavior and at the same time a volume of them coming forward that suggest and they do more than suggest in the in the conclusion of the jesuit investigator who looked into the more than suggest establish that he behaved in such a predatory fashion over such a period of time against so many people and did so in a way that was not just taking advantage of his own sort of artistic process and work, but really using a, a blasphemous spirituality to coerce religious sisters into his sort of web of disordered sexuality. 
that I think there's a real legitimate call of justice here that these charges have to be answered. And it's not enough to just say, oh, well, you know, it was in the 90s. There doesn't seem to be a lack of evidence. That certainly wasn't the conclusion of the investigator that I, as I've understood it, that the investigator by the Jesuits seemed to be saying, I'm pretty satisfied this happened and I'm pretty satisfied we can prove it. And in that case, I really don't understand the argument for not waiving prescription. Um, And I mean, okay, I've been talking for a minute and I'll, I'll stop in a second, but this gets onto a hobby horse of mine that I have, which is we have no jurisprudence from the DDF to study as a sort of canonical body of work. Like, you know, the, the Roman road of the apostolic signature, they regularly publish sort of anonymized and sanitized sentences so people can understand the mind of the court and how they apply the law and how they think about different situations and stuff like that. But we don't have that in gravior delicta, major crimes cases in canon law coming out of the DDF. And we really need it. We really need it because we have gotten past the point where it's a vexation for canonists working on cases on the ground who are like, I don't know how Rome thinks about this, so I'm just going to give it my best stab. And, you know, I guess they're going to grade my homework and I'll find out later. Like we have gotten to the point where we have had enough scandals over decades, in some cases, systemic scandals where we need real transparency. I'm not saying that, you know, the, the DDF should publish Name decisions and named cases so everyone can see all the gory details. But we're getting to the point where we do need a body of jurisprudence to study and to say this is how the law of the church is applied so that we can see what the rules are. We can see how they're applied. And when there are things like, well, when do you waive the statute of limitations? We can read the argumentation and we can understand the rationale. Not, you know, I'm not saying in Rupnik's case, they need to publish the Rupnik case and tell us what they did in this case. But if we had a body of jurisprudence to reflect on and to study. We could say, well, we know how the court thinks about this sort of stuff, so this is probably why they decided the way they did in this case. We would at least be able to have an informed reading of events. And Mm -hmm. we don't got it, and we need it. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. I don't think there's anything more that can be said about that. There has always been a sense that... um, that that is extremely valuable in practice of canon laws that relates to the Roman Rota to know how cases were decided and how the Rota has thought about them. The Roman Rota decides most, mostly marriage cases in the church um, uh, that are appealed to the Holy See, and it is extremely helpful to have um, a body of jurisprudence. There is um, some jurisprudence available from the Apostolic Signatura, which decides certain procedural decisions, but um, on in many kinds of cases, among them penal cases, there's no jurisprudence, and that makes it, even though there, the jurisprudence is not binding, um, in the church's legal system, it understanding the yes, mind there of those no who... there is no stare decisis. There is no stare decisis in the Holy Mother Church. That's right. Um, one decision is not binding each in a civil law system, which is what the church's codified law instead of common law. In a common law system, excuse me, in a civil law system, each case is judged on the judge's interpretation, the judge's understanding of the facts and the law. Um, but... Um, but Understanding how the judges have thought about the law and understanding how judges who preceded them have thought about the law is helpful for understanding how the church thinks about the law, how, how it will apply it. I believe it was who established the maxim that similar cases must be decided in similar ways, but right. we don't have binding precedent. That's exactly right. So um, so it would be very helpful and it would not be outside of the norm. What we get for the road, for example, is sanitized jurisprudence, um, yes. you know, a jurisprudence in which the identifying details of the parties has been have been scrubbed such that one can read about a case and how the Holy See understood the case without reading the names of the persons. 
And again, I think you're right. There's no reason why that can't exist in uh, as a matter of penal law. In fact, very honestly, dioceses, if they were inclined, I don't think there's any reason that I can identify that dioceses would be barred from publishing the sanitized jurisprudence of their of the ca- penal cases they deal with. Do you? Ooh, yes, I can. Roman replies, right? I mean, if you sanitized it and sent it to Roman, well, oh, okay, so uh, yeah, you could you could do it through Roman replies. Okay, I thought you meant a diocese might itself publish. I was like, well, I, well, I, don't, I don't think know that a diocese I even see a difference there. Well, the difference would be that a diocese hopefully doesn't have all that many cases. Oh, right. So that the parties might be identified merely by the fact that which diocese yeah. was publishing it. Exactly. There's a journal called Roman Replies or a resource called Roman Replies, which canonists use as a place uh, – as a pre <laughs> – precedes the internet. As a place. <laughs> yeah. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a service it's – a, it's a publication which precedes the internet and, and it's still helpful because it ends up in libraries in a systematic way, although in the internet age – there are other ways to do this, but a canonist gets an interesting response from a Vatican dicastery about some particular issue that he knows other canonists are um, also working on, and he sends it to Roman replies, and it's sanitized so that you can't identify who or even where, and then it's published in Roman replies so that everybody can know, here's how the Holy See has handled this kind of case in the past. And, um, you know, very honestly, I don't think there's a reason why dioceses couldn't send sanitized jurisprudence to Roman replies. Do you? No, I suppose not. I mean, apart from fear that the DDF might come after you if they read it and said, you know, who do you think you are making this stuff public? We don't do that. Yeah. It would at least, it would at least, if a diocese were to try it. You know who could do that? Who's that? One of the parties involved in the case. Yeah, one of the parties involved in the case. Now, bear in mind that the ale- that in cases of clerical sexual misconduct, the alleged victim is ordinarily not a, a party to the case. Yes, I was just thinking of the problem is, and actually, even if you're the, the reyes, the accused, so to speak, in a major crimes case, very often you are not given a copy of your own sentence. Uh-huh, that's right. Uh, you can examine it. But I think the DDF would be hard-pressed to do that in light of Vosestis and, and other things from the Holy Father, which have emphasized that um, cases involving clerical sexual misconduct should not be uh, subject to the pontifical secret, which makes the Pope's comments about Rubnik all the more interesting. Pope Francis is the guy who keeps saying transparency on so many on so many things, both sort of um, officially by promulgating things which urge more transparency. And then in uh, other interviews lately, I said, I'd like to see more transparency on the stuff the Pope said recently. But one concrete manifestation of that would be, honestly, to publish the the Rupnik file, sanitizing, identifying details of those who need not be identified and demonstrate how it was the prescription was, was not waived and, and these other things were addressed. And it would be instructive, I think, in a lot of ways, one way or another. And I don't know what... I, I understand that we don't do that, and I understand that there is a desire to protect the parties. But there's also, I think, one cannot ignore the fact that there is also a reflexive, even if not always conscious, that the aversion to the reflexive aversion to that is also rooted in a kind of institutional self-protection, a disposition towards institutional self-protection. And I wonder if it would be if bishops themselves, and even the Holy See itself, would be well served to consider a more transparent publication of the jurisprudence of the CDF on these matters. I I would certainly think it would be. And with that matter, Ed, uh, I've got to go because I've got to take a kid to the doctor. Um, so uh, it is, uh, oh, as always, good to talk with you. And I will look forward to talking with you next week. And um, the Pillar Podcast, of course, is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and J.D. Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn. And I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed Give the people a word of wisdom. Remember to rebel against authority, kids. (laughs) That was not the one I expected. Toodaloo, everybody.